Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I have the pleasure to talk with Doug McAdam, who is the author of Deeply Divided, Racial Politics and Movement, Social Movements in Postwar America. Doug's book is uh, co-written with Karina Kluse and is published this year by Oxford University Press. I hope that you enjoy this conversation that I had with Doug. Welcome back to the podcast. Today I have the real pleasure to talk with Doug McAdam, who is the author, co-author with Karina Kluse of Deeply Divided, Racial Politics and Social Movements in Post-War America. Doug, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Heath. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Uh, please, before we start, maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about yourself and whether I have uh, correctly or, or incorrectly pronounced your co-author's name, and, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about her as well. I'd be delighted to. Uh, yes, you pronounced her name perfectly. I'm impressed. Great. Um, I, you know, I'm a sociologist by training. Um, I'm at Stanford University. I've been there about 20 years. Um, most of my work uh, in my career has been on one of two topics, the dynamics of social movements or other forms of contentious politics, and with a, but a lot of emphasis as well on kind of American racial politics, and that's really the focus of uh, Deeply Divided. Karina Kluse, fabulous graduate student, actually former graduate student of mine. She's now graduated and, and is working for a nonprofit in Seattle. Uh, just a phenomenal graduate student, and I couldn't have done the book without her. Yeah, and, and that's saying a lot because this is not a little book. This is a big book in terms of its uh, scope and its span, and and so this is this is a, a big effort. I imagine in writing it that that's what you intended. It really did turn out that way. Before we get to kind of some of the the what what the book is all about. Um, you explain very early in the book, in, in figures 1.1 and 1.2, they, they show up, I don't know, within the first two or three pages of the book, um, uh, kind of at the heart of, of what this book is all about, is particularly all about trying to explain. So I wonder if you could briefly describe these two figures, um, you know, with, without them in front of us. What do they look like and, and what do they show that you then were trying to investigate and answer to? OK, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the motivating question for the book is pretty straightforward. How did we go from the kind of striking bipartisanship, political bipartisanship and comparative economic equality of the post-World War II period to the very deep divisions of today And the two big divisions that are kind of highlighted in those figures, one is economic or income inequality, which has we have comparable data on income inequality for about the last 100 years. That's all. Um, And we were most equal in terms of income inequality uh, in that post-war period Um, and then uh, higher uh, in the 20s um, and to a certain extent in the 30s as well. And then, again, starting sometime in the 70s and, and escalating in the 80s and beyond, we've become much more unequal in income terms. 
The other figure is political polarization for which we have good data through for the entirety of, of, of the American history, courtesy of two, two really important political scientists, uh, Poole and Rosenthal. And it, the, that, that figure shows something very similar. That is, we were the two parties in Congress were closest together in terms of their kind of voting, uh, their voting patterns, their ideologies, if you will, in that post-World War II period. And they were we were more polarized before the post-war period and dramatically more polarized again from about 1970 on the two parties moving sharply apart. And that the distance between the two parties has actually increased rather sharply since uh, the 2010 midterms when the Tea Party really became a force in American politics. So. Previously on the podcast, we've had Hans Noel talk about polarization. Just a couple of weeks ago, Michael Heaney came on to talk about movement politics. And, and both of them are, are circling around some territory that, that you focus on, what, what you describe as the tug of war between movement and party. And, and one of the ways that you use to, to frame this is to think about the centrifugal and the centripetal pressures. I wonder if you can talk just a little bit about those two different pressures and and just kind of theoretically what what they mean for for the rest of the book. Yeah, the, the, the centrifugal uh, force of movements is something we I think we've seen throughout American history uh, where movements tend to, you know, uh, if, if party politics tends to be kind of pragmatic and generally tends to be centrist in its um, kind of in its dynamics. That is, parties to win in, in a two-party winner-take-all system have to uh, get 50% of the vote plus one. So you tend to think about assembling a kind of centrist coalition that can prevail in elections. Those are the centripetal pressures of party politics, at least in an American con- U.S. context. Movements tend to be more extreme, more ideological. They tend to push parties, try to push parties off center. Um, sometimes they're successful. A lot of times they're not. One of the things that was interesting about that post-war period is that there was comparatively little social movement activity, whether this was a function of the kind of prosperity of the post-war years or a kind of chilling effect of McCarthyism, who really knows? But there was comparatively little social movement activity in that period. And the parties were able to kind of, uh, again, uh, point to the center of the ideological distribution, median voter theorem, as it were. Um, But starting in the 1960s, uh, movements roar back to life or become a very important part of American politics again, principally through two movements that we highlight in the book. One, of course, is the civil rights struggle, the civil rights movement. And then there's a white resistance movement that develops in response to the civil rights movement. We tend to think about that in the South, you know, fire hoses and police dogs in in Birmingham. But in point of fact, there was considerable resistance to the civil rights movement throughout the country. And we argue that those two movements, parallel movements, 
push the two parties off center and really restructure American politics in a big way. Yeah, and, and um, this this telling was so so interesting. But what I was as interested was was this next period. Um, and, and I wanted to just briefly quote, because it was sort of a, a compelling part of uh, chapter three or four. So you write, um, no episode in the last half century did more to increase the institutional leverage available to grassroots activists than the, quote, quiet revolution that took place in those years, that being 1968 through 1972. So uh, tell us about 1968. Tell us about what what was quiet about it and also revolutionary, because the the details that you provide in that chapter are just so very interesting. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, this was a, a revelation to me. I, I knew the, the history of the 60s, uh, at least with respect to race, civil rights and the white resistance movement pretty well going into this project. But this revolution, this quiet revolution that took place between 68 and 72 was news to me. Um, we, we all, or many of us remember the 1968 Democratic Convention as one of, you know, one of the most dramatic conventions in recent American political history. This is the convention in Chicago where there was essentially a kind of police riot against, um, anti-war demonstrators, a lot of violence in the streets. A lot of anger uh, directed at the Democratic Party at that convention because of the prosecution of the war, etc. But there was uh, there was real activity going on inside the convention hall, also by new left activists, anti-war activists. And while the demonstrations outside had little effect on the proceedings, what happened inside uh, was really quite extraordinary. Uh, so how do how do I do this quickly? Um, there was a group of McCarthy supporters. Eugene McCarthy was an uh, anti-war candidate for the presidential nomination. Many credit his showing in New Hampshire in 1968 with uh, convincing uh, Johnson to withdraw from the race. Um, but McCarthy, uh, after Johnson withdrew from the race, McCarthy continued to enter all the primaries. You remember Bobby Kennedy throws his hat into the ring late, but he also enters primaries and defeats McCarthy in a number of those, including the important California primary. He's shot, of course, the night of that primary after accepting, you know, uh, or after the victory. That leaves McCarthy as the only candidate who's contesting primaries. But primaries then don't look pro- like primaries now. There, A, there's not very many of them. B, they're non-binding. Uh, so here we go into the convention in, uh, in, in August in Chicago. And Hubert Humphrey, who hasn't contested a single primary and is very identified with the prosecution of the war, is clearly going to emerge as the nominee, uh, the presidential nominee, the Democratic Party. This infuriated uh, the anti-war activists, New Left generally, and a group of them uh, decided that they were going to try to effectively uh, change the rules for delegate selection by going to Chicago and petitioning uh, the relevant committees, standing committees of the Democratic Party, 
to change the voting rules. Uh, there's a much more complicated backstory, but I won't go into it. But they're operating on the floor of the convention. They do not get exactly what they want out of these standing committees. But what they do get is a, uh, a you know, a voice vote on the last day, last night of the convention um, that I think almost none of the delegates really understood what the voice vote was about. But essentially, it was whether the Democratic uh, Democratic National the party, the Democratic Party would uh, essentially uh, create a commission to review its delegate selection and nominating procedures and uh, recommend uh, reforms if need be. That was the nature of the voice vote. It carried by a slim margin. Those same activists then ran with the, you know, this victory, essentially put together a commission staffed by their, their, the, the very same people who had orchestrated this effort. They got George McGovern to chair the committee, the commission. They conducted hearings. They met from 68 to 70. Um, and no surprise, they issued a set of recommendations that uh, to totally revamp the way that the Democratic Party selected its both its delegates and and essentially nominated a president. Um, the state party organizations were told that they needed to um, use a popular method um, of um, essentially selecting delegates state by state. That meant either a binding primary, a popular vote, or a caucus, but again, one open to all. And that however those the caucus or primary turned out, that would uh, bind those delegates to uh, whoever the winner was in, in that particular state. Uh, everybody assumed that the, the commission, once it had issued its recommendations, would have to take those back to the Democratic National Committee. McGovern simply arbitrarily said, no, we have the mandate of the party based on the voice vote. And they entered into negotiations with all 50 state party organizations and essentially implemented this new system in time for the 1972 presidential race. So I don't remember the number of primaries in 1972. I think it was 30, but that was double the number of in 1968. More importantly, the results of those primary contests was binding. So that totally changed the way we nominate presidents and gave enormous power to grassroots movement groups who are the ones who tend to contest primary contests. Now, the, the story and the, the details that that um, uh, you, some of the details you didn't, didn't get into, you people have to read it in the book because they um, they really do say tell such an interesting story just about the mechanics of how parties work and, and this 1968 convention that people I think all you know most people have some shorthand knowledge of really does fill out many of the details. But but what also makes this so significant is that it's not just contained um, within the Democratic Party. This is this is not just a uh, feature of the left. It also has a big impact on the right. So how did this quiet revolution 
ultimately shaped the emergence of conservatives in the 1970s because it would be surprising, I imagine, at that time period to think that this work being done would ultimately affect both parties, not just the Democratic Party. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I still find it somewhat puzzling that the Republicans um, essentially adopt the same kinds of new rules or procedures that the Democrats uh, put in place in 1972. It takes until 1976, but the Republicans essentially roll out a very similar number of binding primaries. And it does have effects um, on both parties and the candidates they select in the 70s. Uh, Jimmy Carter on the Democratic side in 76, uh, there's just no way he would have come through uh, the older party-centered backroom negotiation style of, of nomination or that kind of a nomination system. I make the argument or we make the argument in the book that Ronald Reagan, I don't, I don't know that Ronald Reagan would have become president in 1980 had the new system not been in place in 1976. It was perfect for the kind of grassroots activists who got behind a Reagan challenge in 1976. Gerald Ford, you'll remember, was president. Uh, but he had not been elected president. He took over when uh, Nixon resigned in 1974 uh, for not particular, not particularly distinguished or popular president. And Reagan challenged the sitting president of his own party in 1976 and almost defeated him. It was a very close contest. And again, I don't think there's any way, given the old nominating system, that Reagan would have gotten any kind of traction in 76. Ford as a kind of moderate centrist leader of the party, I think, and sitting president at the time would have simply been anointed the candidate in 76. But Reagan almost beats him. And the Ford quite magnanimously gives Reagan an opportunity to address the convention second to the last night. And Reagan delivers this extraordinary speech, which gets a lot of Republicans thinking differently about him. The party was pretty centrist still in the 70s. And there was a lot of wariness of Reagan as not electable, as too extreme, a too extreme a conservative. His performance in that primary or in the contest, the nominating contest in 76 and in the speech at the convention totally changed, I think, the way he's seen within the party. And movement forces line up behind him in 1980. Uh, By then, the tax revolt, nationwide tax revolt, has given him a, a group of kind of tax advocates, tax reform activists who line up behind him. The Christian right is has been mobilized at that by that point. So he has lots and the, the pro-life forces. There's a whole set of movement actors who are active in the primary contest in 1980. And Reagan comes through that process uh, quite easily. You know, it seems to me that one of the arguments you're making in the in the book is that um, as dramatic as the Reagan revolution was, it wasn't nearly as dramatic in terms of its effect in the 1980s as it is now, that, that, that now is the time period that we're really 
uh, experiencing the effects of, of what happened 20, 30 years ago. And so let, let's just fast forward a little bit, just in the interest of time, and, and in some ways return back to your title, which is Deeply Divided. Um, I wonder if there's an aspect of what divides the country today that worries you most, um, something that, that perhaps cuts more deeply than people even accept uh, and, and understand about the sort of the nature of polarization and inequality, as we talked about at the start. Um, let's talk about the later parts of the book and, and our current uh, time period. What, what worries you most now? Um, I think it's probably um, uh, the what I see is some real threats to kind of uh, our our democratic heritage and our democratic practices. Um, you know, it's one thing to be divided and to have very strongly held views, but to continue to absolutely adhere to a set of democratic practices for how you resolve differences. Um, I, I'm really concerned that um, there are some very real threats to the fundamental principle of political equality have developed uh, over the last decade or so, maybe maybe two decades, um, that really are compromising our kind of democratic heritage. Jimmy Carter stunned an audience in Atlanta, uh, now it's about 18 months ago, with a kind of offhand remark uh, in, in whatever this talk he was giving, and he said that um, America is no longer a functioning democracy. Well, that's a jolt for former, mm -hmm. former president to say that. And, uh, you know, I think there may be a, a little bit of hyperbole there. But when a, a former president says you're you're no longer have a functioning democracy, we we best pay attention. Um, I'll just highlight two issues uh, that I think uh, these are examples of what I'm talking about in terms of threats to democracy. One is the concerted efforts, mostly by Republicans, almost entirely by Republicans, um, uh, to restrict the franchise, uh, to pass laws that effectively make it more difficult for traditional Democratic constituencies to cast ballots with, you know, specifically in relationship to um, minority voters, uh Immigrants, new, relatively newcomers to the country, students, um, and you know the nominal. Most of these bills or most of these proposed pieces of legislation are ID laws, uh, requiring voters to have new ID laws. And the nominal justification for the laws is to address voter fraud. Well, that's a fraudulent issue in and of itself. Um, we really have not had a serious issue with voter fraud since the progressive era. Um, so there is no real issue. What's really going on is that Republicans are seeking to restrict the franchise, again, of traditional Democratic constituency, constituencies and especially, I would say, racial minorities. The Republicans are overwhelmingly a white party or party of white racial conservatives. Ninety percent of those who cast ballots for Romney in 2012 were white. Only 60 percent of those who voted for Obama were. There's a demographic news tightening around the Republican Party. We know there's a shift, the, the, the shifting demography of the country. In 40 years or so, uh, white voters are expected to be a minority of the electorate. 
So each with each election, the news tightens a little bit more. And I think there's willful efforts or very clear efforts going on to try to restrict the franchise in a country where our voting rates are already relatively low, embarrassingly low. Efforts to restrict voting and make it harder for people to exercise political voice strike me as anti-democratic. Second uh, example of these kind of threats to democracy involve extreme gerrymandering. Gerrymandering has you know, gone on for a long time in this country, uh, but it seems more, much more uh, extreme now and, it's, and much more effective, partly because of uh, GIS, the geographic information systems that allow for very sophisticated drawing of boundaries. Um, this has had the effect in the House of Representatives of dramatically reducing the number of competitive House districts. I, again, don't have the numbers in front of me, but, uh, you know, it used to be, I mean, 15 years ago, the modal house district was competitive. It no longer is. Something like 90 percent of our house districts are basically captured by one or the other party. That's also reducing citizen voice in elections. There's many more examples we take up in the book, but I'll leave it at those two. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's quite obvious, um, given the the nature of this short conversation, how how much breadth there is to this to this book that Doug and Karina have written, which is titled "Deeply Divided: Racial Politics and Social Movements in Postwar America," published by Oxford University Press this year. Doug, thank you very much for your time today. It was an absolute pleasure. Your questions were superb. Thank you. 